according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, we are in the book of Isaiah once again. And uh, it's been a couple of weeks now since we were here in Isaiah. We had the ordination weekend last weekend and the blessings there. But today we come to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Isaiah 55. And not just because it starts with ho. All right? I like ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We have an invitation here that is extended to everybody. Extended on the basis of the need. The need is thirsting. And we'll talk about what thirsting represents. But it is a universal invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And if there's something you think is keeping you from coming, think again. If you think you don't earn it, think, well, you're right. You don't earn it, but come anyway. You haven't deserved it, but come anyway. You can't afford it, but come anyway. Because the price has already been paid. And what a, uh, what a blessing it is to discuss these things here today. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions, to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. This is our grace provision, Father. You have supplied it to us. Not uh, one of us has earned it or deserved it. Who are we that we should be brought into your uh, counsel, that you should disclose yourself to us? Father, we're not entitled to any explanation of who you are or what you're doing. Uh, Father, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. And yet, on this day, you have shared with us your thoughts, your ways, your very grace has been extended to each one of us. And so, as we look at this beautiful chapter, Father, I pray that we would have an understanding and that it would become a living part of how we think and how we operate. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have in this chapter a continuation from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. In other words, chapter 54 leads us right on into chapter 55. And so uh, try to reclaim, if you've lost it in the last couple of weeks, try to reclaim a millennial mindset, all right? Try to be thinking in terms of eschatology in the days that have not yet come. Put yourself forward in time to the, the wonderful joy and rejoicing that happens when the barren woman gives birth. And so in shouting for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child, the introduction to chapter 54 carries us across now from chapter 54 into 55. It is in the same context of excitement and joy and the coming of the kingdom. As Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is not here yet, but it is coming. And it will be a reality for the Jewish people, not only the racially Jewish people, all right, but those who are born again. And that's what we see in these early verses. In fact, verses one through five make the point. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is is designed for those who never thirst again. It is a spiritual kingdom. Yes, it's on this earth and it is populated by people who are of this world, but or from this world, but no longer of this world, you understand, all right? It is God's kingdom on this earth, and it is for believers only. An unbeliever who so happens to accidentally somehow survive the tribulation, and he somehow stays alive through all of the wrath of God that's poured forth, he will not be permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, that only born-again believers enter into the kingdom of his of his uh, beloved son. So in verses 1 through 5, we see it. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is designed for those who never thirst again. And in the metaphor of thirsting and drinking and receiving eternal life, we understand uh, what this passage is dealing with because we have several passages that use the very same motif of drinking, of living water, of eating or drinking as a faith, as a metaphor for faith acceptance of the promises of God. 
And this is what we observe here. Let's let's go through verse 5 and just take them as a unit. We've uh, already read verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Three times the come order is given there. And then uh, a fourth one shows up shortly in verse 3. Verse 2 says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. All right, and so here is the invitation to come for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, and it is designed strictly for believers. Israel, what a parallel we're we're looking at here. Remember last week, Hugh Crowder was here and he was showing us, taking us through Ezekiel and showing us the grumblings in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? What a parallel. Israel at the Exodus grumbled for water and food. And here's a contrast for you. Because the millennial provision of water, wine, milk, and bread, everything they could ever dream of is going to be supplied to them abundantly in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. As we look at it here in these first two verses of Isaiah 55. Israel at the Exodus, Exodus 15, if you want to read through those chapters, we spent a lot of time last Sunday when Pastor Hugh Crowder was here, we looked at that grumbling, and it just boggles my mind. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22, finishing the chapter, doing all of chapter 16 and the first seven verses of chapter 17, all right? And you go through these early grumbling episodes. We're not talking 20 years of grumbling, we're talking the first couple weeks out of, out of Egypt, all right, the very people that walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, the very people that saw the basically walls on the left and right, walls of water uh, of the parted Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground. They get to the other side. They did have some worship and singing, you know, the standard praise and worship service on the other side. But then what happens? Now we've got water problems. Now we've got food problems. And we miss the meat that we used to eat back in Egypt and all of the grumbling that takes place there in those early chapters. And you could really do a, do a devotional study on this and have fun with all the M's. All right? I almost put a slide up there this morning with a whole bunch of M's as Moses brought them out. And there was Meribah, and there was Mara, and there was murmuring, and there was... Uh, you can do a lot of the M's with, uh, with that study. And so you can have some fun with it. Especially when you learn that Egypt in Hebrew starts with an M. Okay? They came out of Mitzrayim. And they passed through the Mayim. They passed through the water. You get even more M's if you're going to study it in Hebrew. Now, but in the millennial kingdom, guess what? No grumbling. For two reasons. First of all, because all the provision is there. But secondly, and mainly, because they are saved. They have the, the, the perspective of grace that, that appreciates the Savior that has redeemed them. It is not simply a military rescue. It is not simply a political deliverance. It is not simply a change of government that uh, everyone can be happy about. It is a true repentance that the nation of Israel experiences. All Israel shall be saved. And being born again and being, uh, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in that manner, redeemed Israel as they enter into the kingdom will I don't believe they'll even have the capacity to grumble at that point, uh, given the, uh, the work that God has done on their behalf. We understand thirsting in the metaphor. We know what it means to thirst, right? We all understand earthly thirsting. Well, how about spiritual thirsting? What is the thirsting for righteousness about? The thirsting for truth or the thirsting for life? Jesus taught this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Thirsting is the condition of the unbeliever in need of living water. Thirsting is the condition of the unbeliever in need of living water. And I hope we don't lose sight of that. I hope we can make use of that in our outreach, in our evangelism. Realizing that every unbeliever you encounter is thirsting. They may deny it. They may not want to admit it. 
But there is a capacity of their soul that is thirsting because they are made in the image of God and they are not yet transformed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so every unbeliever you meet is going to be in a condition that's described here in John chapter 4. Grab a look at this here quickly. I have probably enough for a month of Sundays just in this one chapter, and I've got one hour to to dish it out. I'm not even sure it's going to happen today. But in John chapter 4, I could spend a month of Sundays on this chapter too. (laughs) John chapter 4. Here's this woman at the well. You know, a Gentile, a Samaritan. The Jews hated Samaritans. And a woman... All right, you know what the, the gender wars were like back then and the attitude of men towards women and, and every other reason why Jesus wouldn't even give her the time of day and he's witnessing to her about himself. And uh, plus, uh, well, there's other reasons. But in this process, uh, they come to the town. He stays out there by the well. They go into the city to buy food. The disciples do. And here comes this woman in verse 7. I like verse 6, Jacob's well was there and Jesus being wearied from his journey. You ever, I mean, you're tired. It's been a long day. Come on. And the last thing you want is someone to, you know, I mean, this is overtime, right? He's got he's to go back to work again. And here comes this woman uh, about the sixth hour. And this woman comes and he says, give me a drink. And this is where the, uh, the evangelism is going to take place. And... Um, the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. And here's where the, the truth of what thirst is all about, spiritual thirst. The thirst that we have here is the thirst we're looking at this morning in Isaiah 55. You're in need of the living water. And she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Okay. There's another doctrine that his way quartet used to sing about. All right. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well to drink of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, this is huge. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Right? I mean, that's just the way it works. There's never anything. I mean, even the you know, this coffee I'm using this morning, it's going gonna, it's gonna to overpower the allergies and whatever else is out there and keep me going for at least 50 more minutes, okay? But I'm going to get thirsty again, probably several times before I'm done with this chapter. The living water is a once and for all experience. You realize, this is Robert Jewell's favorite eternal security passage. He says, because when you drink this living water, you never thirst again that's proof that you cannot lose your salvation because if so you'd be thirsting again right but whoever drinks of the water i shall give him shall never thirst but the water that i will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life and she still doesn't get it she actually starts mocking him at this point a little sarcasm there which i understand i speak fluent sarcasm she says the woman said to him sir give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. Yeah, that sounds great. In fact, if I can save walking out to this well every day, that'd be, that'd be marvelous. Give me that living water. And this is when he nails her and he says, all right, go and call your husband to come here. And, and uh, he just sets her up and she walks right into it. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, or you correctly said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. And he has her whole past just laid out there in front of her. And does that offend her? Does she get mad? Is she all, you know, outraged that he would be so intrusive into her private sex life? No. Because she does thirst. She thirsts greatly and she wants to know the truth. She's, she, she's, we would say she's positive to the point of God consciousness and she's ready for gospel hearing. And rather than being offended that all of her, you know, sins have been or dirty laundry's been aired out there, she's actually dazzled that, man, this is a real prophet. This is a guy that's going to give me my answers. <laughs> Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
<laughs> you know, she can't deny the five prior lovers and the one that she has now. Um, you know, he could have told, he could have named names and given her more specifics if she really wanted. But no, she's face to face with a prophet. Now she wants her questions answered. She says, "Our, you know, Samaritans, we worship in this mountain, but you Jewish people say that Jerusalem is the place." So what is it? You know, the Samaritans had their own Pentateuch. They copied the Jewish Pentateuch, put it into their language, changed a couple of you know tweak, little tweaks here and there. You got to improve it. You got to make this the holy mountain, of course, because this is where we are. <laughs> All right. But here's this woman, and what does she? She wants to know. Hey, if if our book is a fraud, I want to know. Right? If the Book of Mormon's a fraud, I want to know. If the Quran is a fraud, I want to know. If all these other things are full of lies, I want to know. If the Bible is the truth, I want to know. And uh, he's very graciously provides this. Anyway, it's, it's a beautiful chapter. But here's the issue of thirsting. And uh, he'll, he'll use the same metaphor again, eating and drinking. He'll talk about eating my flesh and drinking my blood in uh, John chapter 6. Okay, And that gets even more gruesome because that almost seems cannibalistic. <laughs> Eat my flesh. All right, drink my blood. But it's the metaphor, people. Drinking and eating is the, is the exercise of faith. You are actually chewing, swallowing, internalizing what it is that's being offered to you. You are accepting it by faith. That's the metaphor. And so back in Isaiah, then, when we say, uh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters... Who do you not want to give the gospel to? <laughs> okay. Because we don't know who's accepting it, who's rejecting it, who's of the elect or not of the elect, or who's going to receive eternal life, or who might reject it this time but needs to have the seeds planted so that four more times when they hear the gospel, it'll finally start clicking with them. Okay. It's everyone. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by any. The best part of this grace offer is we are giving them everything and asking nothing from them. We're not salesmen. We're not, we're not selling anything. Don't want their money. Don't want anything from them. We're giving them a free offer. And say, here it is. Come. You who have no money, come by any. Well, how do I buy something if I don't have any money? You buy because the price has already been paid. It is without cost. It says without money and without cost. And there's issues that today, I don't think people understand the difference between price and cost. I think sometimes uh, our culture has grown woefully economically ignorant in a lot of respects. But here's the thing. And I, and I learned this from Robbie Dean years and years ago, and it just it stuck with me ever since. Because salvation is free to you, but it is not without cost. It costs God the Father, His only beloved Son. And Jesus Christ went to that cross and he paid the price. And now we can accept the benefit of that price. It's nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it because the price has been paid, but we still have to come. That's the point. We must come. We must complete the transaction. We must make the purchase ourselves, even though it's not coming from our merit, our works, our wealth, our account. It's coming for his. Entrance into the kingdom must be made on a righteous and repentant basis. On a righteous and repentant basis. And this, I think, gets lost in a lot of the studies in the Gospels, in a lot of the preaching by John the Baptist that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think if we have a better understanding of the prophets of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, which we're in right now, in the um, understanding of what was being offered to them on the basis of promise, never on the basis of law, always on the basis of promise with a, needing a, a faith response, then when the John the Baptist comes preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it should not have been a shocker to the Pharisees and the others that uh, were living there in Jerusalem at that time. Entrance into the kingdom must be made on a righteous and repentant basis. And so is preaching of righteousness to the Jewish people in the accepting of their Messiah, in the accepting of their, of their kingdom. And this becomes the emphasis, and you can read in several of the gospel records, but I, I like the Luke record, particularly because of a couple of other issues that get connected to this. I'm not saying Matthew or Mark had bad testimonies, but 
there's a couple of additional items that show up in Luke chapter 3 that I've come to like, I've appreciated for a long, long time now. Luke chapter 3. And the issue of repentance, which is typically preached to believers far more often than uh, is ever preached to unbelievers. The idea that they must be saved and they must be walking in a manner worthy of the one who saved them. This is what entrance into the kingdom is being offered by on that basis. Okay. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. There's a detail that boggles people today. Luke knew what it was about, and so did his readers. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. More details are in verse 2 that skeptics don't appreciate, but I think is brilliant on Luke's part. Annas and Caiaphas, both being high priest. Anyway, the mockers say, well, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> That's the mockers that don't know what they're talking about. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is huge. And you've got to understand this dispensationally. You've got to st- rightly divide the word of truth. This is not our Christian baptism. This is not New Testament Christian baptism. This is not what we do down at Barton Springs when we take a church group down there and have water baptism. But this is the preparation of the Jewish people for their kingdom. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, oh, this is prophetic application of the Jewish people from the prophetic scriptures. And uh, we have the uh, citation here. I think back in Isaiah chapter 40, as the ministry of the forerunner, the ministry of the herald was spoken of by the uh, prophet Isaiah. We dealt with that, man, a dozen weeks ago now or more. Verse 7, so he began to say to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is a repentance message and it's not for you unbelievers. <laughs> okay? This is not for you unbelievers. What, what is the purpose for preaching? What is the purpose for certain uh, ministries that Jesus Christ opens up? Some are only for us. Like when we have communion, I I invite unbelievers to not take communion because it's for us. And here's John the Baptist saying, my message isn't for you. Who told you guys to show up? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's almost like who told you you were naked when the Lord encountered Adam, right? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Say, there's a positional necessity, but there's an experiential necessity here for these Jewish believers to be walking right. To be walking right. For I say that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He's not all impressed with you uh, making claims to be sons of Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. You know, like the wood chopper, he's got the axe, it's laid, it's measured, maybe he's even made one little test notch, and he's ready to go. The next time he swings that axe, it's, it's for real. It's going to bite into that tree. That tree's coming down. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here are the experiential requirements for believing Israel to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is the the basis upon which believing Israel will survive the tribulation and be ushered into the millennial kingdom. Okay, When you put it in its dispensational framework, it makes all kinds of sense. But if you twist it into a Billy Graham evangelism tent revival kind of thing, man, you're you're in big trouble. You're talking to unbelievers out there in the world today, telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are you doing? They need to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Don't confuse your gospel message with Israel's kingdom of heaven is at hand gospel message. They're both good news, but the good news to the unbeliever is different than the good news to tribulational Israel anticipating their kingdom. And I find this interesting too. There's so many applications we can make in this. Um, The crowds were were questioning him saying, and then what shall we do? And uh, 
He would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food to do likewise. They were under uh, emergency circumstances to survive the tribulation and different things there. Early church actually patterned some of this when they were under persecution. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? He said, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say, Well, you're in government service, and that's an immoral lifestyle. Change your line of work. Okay? No, you're in government service. You can still be in government service, but do so under biblical principles. Do so in integrity and righteousness before God. Likewise, soldiers, you're in military service, but do so for the glory of Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, a Christian should never be in politics. A Christian should never be in government office. A Christian should never be a soldier. A Christian should never be a police officer. I say, that's garbage. A Christian should be the best politicians, the best uh, government workers, the best police officers, the best soldiers, because they're not working for men. They're working for Jesus Christ. Doing all their work is unto the Lord. The soldiers were questioning, was saying, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. You know, you stop at a traffic stop in Kenya, and it's not a traffic stop. They're not checking license and registration. They're, they're, they're collecting their fees, okay? Except for that one little stretch of road that says corruption-free zone, no, no bribery. Other than that one, one kilometer stretch of road, the rest of the country is wide open to the, uh, the tipping that uh, the uh, police officers expect. Okay. Well, there it is. But entrance into the kingdom must be made on a righteous and repentant basis. And so come. It doesn't cost anything. The price has been paid. But you must make the purchase. You must make the purchase. Listen and live. I love this. Listen and live. Someone should write a hymn. Because it's a lot like look and live. Right? But it's listen and live. Listen and live. And listen carefully to me. See, some people listen, but they don't hear. Other people hear, but they don't listen. I'm not sure how that works. Typically, it's husbands, all right, who heard their wife was saying something, but they weren't exactly listening, right? Because, come on, it was the apple cup, and huskies were beating the cougars. And whatever it was you just said, I didn't hear that. But listen carefully and live. Because the gospel message is being preached. And how beautiful are the feet of those with the good news, right? And when when you get saved, you're not saved by blind faith. You're not saved by believing in belief. It's not faith in faith. It's believing in the promise. It is a good news message that's being communicated. Listen carefully. Don't just believe in nothing for no reason. Believe in everything for every good reason. Trust in Christ for eternal life and consider how faithful God the Father is and how faithful Jesus Christ is and why His promise has infinite worth. And stop and consider. And then, if you want, consider some alternatives and realize, like Norm Geisler said and Frank Turek, there's a whole lot of other claims that are out there that require more faith on less evidence. Okay? And some of those... uh, Atheists uh, have some extraordinary faith. They're trusting hard on something that just is not so. You want the background on that? It's Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. There were serpents in the wilderness and they were biting the people and, and it was the only way to, to live was to look. Okay, Because they had lifted up the, the serpent on the standard there, a bronze serpent on a, on a standard. And if you, everyone who looked to the cross received eternal life okay they were saved from the poison of the of the uh, serpents in the wilderness it's a great chapter it's a great allegory why wasn't that on my list all right so listen to live is similar to look and live and it highlights the good news message being preached this good news message being preached you remember this from back in chapter 52 we had this not long ago chapter 52 and verse 7 How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Do you remember who gave you the message of eternal life? Do you remember who preached to you about life and death and eternal life? It was my mother who preached to me. 
She birthed me physically and then she birthed me spiritually as she sat me down and took me to 1 John chapter 5 and told me about uh, he who has the son has life. Showed me uh, the consequences of not having the son and how these things are written so that you may know that you have life. And so we have the, uh, the blessings here. Now, the rest of this is interesting. I, you, know, you can use this. You can take Isaiah 55 and preach a gospel. But then start to be cautious. Start to show some dispensational discernment when you get to the faithful mercy shown to David. I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Um, when he says, incline your ear and come to me, listen that you may live. That could be a pretty good spot to stop in your church age evangelism, all right? Because dispensationally speaking, the remainder of this applies to Israel and prepares them for their coming kingdom. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And if you try to throw that into an unbeliever today, you know, that's, you're just going to muddy stuff up. So don't do that. Stop in the middle of verse 3. And you'll have, you have every right to do that. Jesus did that, and he's our example, okay? I'll show you what I mean when we get to chapter 61, okay? About six weeks from now. So um, we have this covenant and this Davidic covenant for Israel. If you've never studied the Davidic covenant, you need to, okay? Or the Abrahamic covenant, or the Noahic covenant, or the new covenant, okay? These are vital studies, and this is not the format class that we have to do that, all right? If this was 9.30, we could stop what we're doing right now. If this was our Galatians course, for example, we can stop the verse by verse and say, all right, we're going to spend the next three weeks detailing the Davidic covenant, and we'll go through all of that, and then we'll come back to the verse where we left off and move on from there. But uh, the format of this hour is one chapter per Sunday, and next week I'm moving on to chapter 56, and it's the way it is. So we don't have the opportunity to stop and detail out the Davidic covenant, but we do see it mentioned here in Isaiah 55, 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And this is where the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7 is combined with the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31, and the kingdom of heaven comes to earth and is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. The Davidic covenant eternally guarantees the political destiny of the son of David on the throne of David. The Davidic covenant eternally guarantees the political destiny. You know, I don't know, who, whoever people like for next year's United States elections, you know, whatever party, whatever candidate and all this stuff, and people are hoping they just get the right guy in there. They thought that the last time too, and the time before that, and the time before that. We just get the right guy in there. But none of these guys are the Messiah. The Messiah is on the way. And when he comes, he's not going to sit in the White House in Washington, D.C. He's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And Israel will be the, the uh, leading nation upon this earth. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a chapter you want to learn in those verses, it's extraordinary, verses 8 through 17. In those verses, David has a desire. He wants to serve. He wants to build a temple. He loves the fact that God has blessed him and he wants to respond. It's a marvelous chapter. And he sees his own wealth and he sees his own palace and he sees all these things. God has done so much for him. And who would not want to respond in grace to a God that's done so much for you that way? And he looks around and he sees the, the, the Ark of the Covenant sitting in this shabby old tabernacle, this tent that's been around for hundreds of years. And he says, you know, I want to build, I want to build a house. I want to build a temple for the Lord. And it was actually not a bad idea. <laughs> he was not wrong for that desire. He was simply wrong on the timing. It was not for him to do. It was for the next generation. It was a sign to his son Solomon to build that temple. And so in the process of wanting to do this and being told no, David worshipped. And David so was so um, 
amazed because in the answer of no comes this covenant promise. Your son will build the temple. And your eschatological son, your greater son, your prophetic son, that is Messiah when he is birthed, Messiah will reign on your throne forever. And we see the covenant blessings there. Okay? Um, quickly. There's just so much in this. I, Second Samuel chapter 7. So you can see it with your own eyes. Put your finger there. See the verses. Maybe you leave a church bulletin there. Come back to it this afternoon. Okay? Do you ever fold the corners down to mark the page and come back to it later? It's just paper. Okay? I mean, you're not defiling your Bible. You can, whatever you want to do, bookmark the spot. Come back to this later. Because David wants to do something and God says no. And how many times would that spark um, somebody like you or me or you just have, yeah, throw a fit. Have a temper tantrum. Get all offended. Oh, I'm not good enough for you. Is that it? Oh, you won't let me? Well, fine. If I can't do this, well, then forget it then. I'm not doing anything. Okay? And in which we throw this little hissy fit because of one thing that God says, you can't do that. Your son's going to do that. Okay? And what does David do? He worships. Because in the process of telling David no, he gives him this prophecy of not just a, an immediate son in terms of Solomon, but a greater son. It's, you look at this passage, you read it in two ways. You read it as it applies to Solomon, and you read it to how it applies to Jesus Christ. And it's just extraordinary. As it says in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Well, you know, it almost seems like it's failed because Nebuchadnezzar vacated that throne in 586 B.C. And it's been vacated ever since. It's been promised to be restored and receded forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Man, who am I? He's worshiping. He's thankful. And even though he can't build the temple, what does he do? He pays for it. He, he, lays us, he contracts for, with a neighboring king for the lumber, and he, he lays up the funds to pay for it, and he stockpiles the, the resources needed. All right, my son's going to build it. I'm going I'm to provide so that he can when, when that day comes. And to me, this is beautiful. We also have Psalm 89. Are you familiar with Psalm 89? If not, you ought to be. We all ought to be. Psalm 89. This is a mescal of Ethan the Ezraite. And uh, Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37. Without reading the whole thing, but let me just find a key verse in this. Because you can combine this with Second Samuel. You can have an understanding here. But here it is. How about verse uh, 34? My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Isn't that beautiful? And all these people out there with their replacement theology, they're living in total defiance of that verse right there. They're making God a liar to David, trying to, re, trying to claim Israel's promises for the church. I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne is the sun before me. And it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness of the sky is faithful. But he's not done with Israel. Never will be done with Israel. I understand what the Davidic covenant is all about. It's referenced here according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Eternally guarantees the political destiny of the son of David on the throne of David. And I think that's why Judas was on board. I think Judas understood Jesus and his birthright, understood the lineage, understood his claim to the throne of David, <laughs> and uh, just wasn't exactly happy with uh, the speed at which this was coming about, right? <laughs> well, maybe if, if uh, you could think Judas would think, maybe if I betray him, then he'll, uh, he'll destroy Rome. <laughs> he'll bring in the kingdom. 
Try to help God keep his promises, right? Try to speed things along a little bit. Come on, Jesus, get in gear. I haven't seen the kingdom yet. Never, never dreaming that Jesus would submit and go to the cross and die. Never crossed his satanic mind. All right, the next stretch. Verses 6 through 9. Seek and you shall find. Oh, this is beautiful. Seek and ye shall find. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For your thoughts, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have a context here that relates to our accepting the grace gift, to us returning to God, being reconciled to the Father, even as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. But provision has been made for humanity to be redeemed, for humanity to be reconciled to the Father, to return to the Father. You know, the day Adam and Eve were expelled, there was a cherub that was posted with a flaming sword to keep anyone from coming back to that tree of life. Not anymore, okay? Um, Well, obviously, the flood destroyed that and took care of any uh, earthly geography or any hope to get back to the Garden of Eden. But beyond that, the, uh, the provision has been made. The price has been paid. Come, anyone who thirsts may come. And you're not going to partake of a tree of life. You're going to be drinking from the water of life, receiving eternal life. And, and I love this. In the context, he will abundantly pardon. How simple is it to come and how overwhelming is the forgiveness? He will abundantly pardon. And you think, oh, I've done too much. Oh, I can't possibly be saved. There is nothing you've done that's not savable. Because everything you've done was nailed to the cross. He will abundantly pardon. And you know, I've uh, I tried to tell people, you know, even if you're the worst sinner that's ever walked this earth, you're still one guy among billions. Okay? What have you really done that's not savable? Because he accepted every sin that ever has been and ever will be accomplished. You're just a drop in the bucket. And yet our God will have compassion and our God will abundantly pardon. And if you think you're not savable, think again. But think with God's thoughts. Because His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our thoughts are the ones that somehow think we measure up to something. God's are the thoughts that says, no, you don't measure up to anything. But I give you my righteousness. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do you know that? The gift is eternal, but the opportunity is closing fast. The gift is eternal. But the opportunity to accept the gift is not eternal. The opportunity is closing fast. While he may be found. I, like, I preach this at funerals. I preach this because you know, we don't know when our day will come. And oftentimes funerals are great because you got people there that never go to church, but they're at a funeral. And I get to preach to them. And I get to preach the gospel. And I get to remind them that tomorrow it could be them in the box, right? Tomorrow it could be them. Today may be their last opportunity to accept the, the free gift. And maybe they've heard it before. Maybe they've heard it a hundred times before. Message doesn't change because it's an eternal gospel. But the opportunity to accept the eternal gospel is finite during the days of your sojourn on this earth. In John chapter 7, Jesus stressed this. John chapter 12, he stressed this. For a little while, the the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. He speaks of that in in John chapter 7 and again in John chapter 12. The opportunity is closing fast. And a sense of urgency is good in your witnessing, in your testifying. Because we could have heard a trumpet last night. And and we could have heard a trumpet this morning. It wasn't a trumpet, it was an alarm clock, right? So you got up, put on a suit, went to church. But it could have been a trumpet instead. 
And if there's someone you know that does not yet have eternal life, how sad would today be if we were all gone? And they showed up and the doors were locked and the lights were off and where is everybody? Okay. So uh, you take a look at John chapter 7. You take a look at uh, John chapter 12 and the urgency that Jesus was referencing there. While he may be found. And I think this is neat too. While he may be found. Compassion and pardon are extended on the basis of God's ways and thoughts rather than fallen man's ways and thoughts. And thank God for that. That he puts into place a method by which he is eternally satisfied by a substitutionary sacrifice. All right. You realize how weird that is? You realize how not human that is? You realize how contrary to the elemental things of this cosmos that is? There's not a court in this land or anywhere that would find somebody guilty and then accept a substitute on behalf of that guilty party. Is there a judge in town that would do that? Would the Supreme Court of our land do that? A court interested in fairness would say, you're the criminal, you did it, you're paying the price. But the Supreme Court of heaven accepts the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place. The holiness of God is satisfied by the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we struggle with that, I've even had angry people shake their fist, maybe, metaphorically. I have spoken to angry people. Maybe they shook a fist, I don't know. But they they have told me they never asked Jesus to take their place. They didn't ask for it. They don't want it. They're fine and happy going to hell because they never asked for him to die for them anyway. And I think, wow, how lost are you? I don't pray enough, (laughs) okay? I need to double my prayers for this guy. Anyway, this is a concept that's brought into Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. How it is that he forgives those whom he forgives, how it is that he's gracious to anybody, but how it is that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And it is so multidimensional, you can't measure it in a linear distance. It's not a matter of getting a ladder high enough to get you there because there is no ladder high enough. It's as the heavens are higher than the earth. It is an infinite distance in a dimensional uh, kind of way. Our thoughts will never get us there. See, some unbelievers might get all figuring out, well, hey, you know, we can, uh, once we we get to hell, then a whole bunch of us, maybe all of us except one, we can all transfer our sins to this one guy and he can take our place. That's human thinking. And then understand, well, how should I suffer eternally if I've only committed a finite number of sins? I mean, come on, how many sins have I done? I'm only, you know, 20 years old. How many sins could I have committed in that time? I've only done a finite number of sins. Why should I suffer forever? That's human way of thinking. As God does not think our thoughts. No, we have violated an infinite standard of eternal, infinite holiness. And thankfully, He has accepted a sacrifice of eternal, infinite holiness to satisfy the violation of his eternal, infinite holiness. So compassion and pardon are extended on that basis. And, and then we've got we to just totally remove our human way of thinking out of this picture. As we start to pick and choose, we start to think some people are better than other people. That's garbage. Some people don't need quite as much grace to get saved as other people, right? I mean... I was practically born saved. I mean, as good as I am, come on. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't suffer that much. Not for me anyway, you know, for these other guys. Oh my. Man, did he have to suffer hard for those guys. No. An infinite sacrifice for all of us. This seeking thing bugs a lot of people too. Do you, do you hate this? Calvinists hate this. I love it. Okay. And the reason why is because people get 
uh, slaved into a, into, a, into a theology that camps on a verse and rejects everything else. Well, nobody seeks. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No, not one. There is none righteous. Well, I'm righteous. <laughs> okay, well, okay, understand what these statements are saying. Yes, I accept the fact that no one seeks. And it's not just Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 is quoting from Psalm 14. Okay, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. No one seeks. No one can come. But we're ordered to. We're invited to. And we can come when the Father who sent Jesus Christ draws us. Okay? In ourselves we cannot come. And in ourselves we do not seek. See, both of these concepts are true. Nobody seeks, but all are commanded to seek. And those who do seek will find. And every one of these passages is true. We want to reconcile all of them and affirm the truth in every statement God makes. And we do not want to fall for the either-or trap that says, this is true, therefore those other verses cannot be right. And that's where a Calvinist goes. Because a Calvinist says nobody seeks. And so they find a way to explain how people who don't seek will eventually seek once they're made alive and God makes them seek. Okay? And they have to jump through theological hoops to get there. And they actually damage language to get there. So... Um, this may not be of interest to you, but I think it is significant. I, if, I, if I find that somebody is camping on a verse, and that's their total verse, and, and there's other verses that, you know, don't contradict, but they complement, and you want to you have some balance to your understanding on things, give them those other verses, give them the balance, and then walk away. <laughs> okay? Let them lose sleep over it. Let them chew on it. Let them wrestle over all kinds of stuff. Right? You want to throw nobody seeks at me? Okay, fine. Throw that verse at me. Here's one. Seeking ye shall find. Here's one. Come. Come to the waters. Come. Buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money, without cost. And so you've got a verse and i got a verse. Your verse says no one comes. My verse tells you to three times. Orders you to come three times. So let's affirm the truth value of both passages, reconcile them together as complements, and don't reject certain verses out of your Bible because you say, well, they contradict. There's no lie anywhere in the Bible. There's no wrong verse anywhere in the Bible. We want to be clear on that. So when we do have Psalm 14, we are talking about within the realm of fallen humanity and left to our own devices and within our ways and our thoughts. Okay. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Great, marvelous passage. I love it. It's true. There is none who seeks. There is none who does good. There is no one qualified to redeem the lost estate of humanity. We're totally depraved in Adam. None of us can redeem any of the others of us. And so that's why he sends his son. His son comes as the one and only to do what we cannot do. So these are true statements. No one is seeking, but we are commanded to seek. And those who do seek will find. And so how do we reconcile these? How do we, how do we balance the fact that nobody is seeking, but then we're told to, and people do start to seek? How is it that they start to seek? Why do they start to seek? Well, then we start to learn other things about how the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. Then we start to read about how the Father who sent me is drawing him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Oh, so somebody can come. Now we start to realize there's more to the story than just that one, that one verse. All right, we are commanded to seek, Isaiah 55, 6, and those who seek will find. First Chronicles 28, 9. How often do we turn to First Chronicles? Not often. 
But see, it's more than just Matthew 7, 7. So I found these other verses too to throw in here. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. I better hurry up or I'm going to have five minutes to do something that takes an hour. The word of God will not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. All right. But First Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. You see that? All right. Some people think, well, everyone's going to eventually get saved. You know, you may have to spend some time in purgatory, but, you know, you'll eventually get there. Not so. Not so. The Bible rejects universalism. Eternal rejection is eternal rejection. Proverbs 8.17. Can't wait to get to Proverbs 8. We just started chapter 7, so we're getting closer on Wednesday mornings. But Proverbs 8.17. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. There you go. And then, of course, Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, knock. Great trinity of verbal imperatives here. Asking ye shall receive, seeking ye shall find, knocking it shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. So there it is. All right. The word of God goes forth and returns. The last portion of this chapter, Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13. Fifty-five, ten through 13. Now this is a secondary four. We have the first four. Back in verse 8, actually we had another 4 in verse 7. He will abundantly pardon, and then my thoughts are not your thoughts. And then 4, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now we have this final 4 here in verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. So he uses the imagery of rain, the imagery of snow, okay, precipitation. It comes down and stuff gets wet. You notice that? Okay. When it's raining, stuff gets wet. And, um, and that's what it does. Comes down and it returns. I wonder what they knew about evaporation and the water cycle and different things that Sometimes I think modern science thinks they're so smart. And the Bible was writing about this stuff thousands of years ago. But this talks about coming and returning. So rain and snow come down from heaven. Do not return there without watering the earth and making a barren sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread of the water. That's what it does. So will my word be, which goes forth my wrath. It goes forth and it returns. It doesn't just go forth and not do anything. It's not like certain words that you speak to your children and they, they go forth and they don't do, do anything. They just, okay? Not so with God. His word goes forth. And we have to view this at least three different ways. My notes will tell you two, but one of those two has two also. So it's really three different ways you want to consider how you read this text. Because are we talking about the written word of God, the Bible, the canon of Scripture? Are we talking about the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, and what He accomplished when He was sent forth, and what He declared in victory when He returned? Okay, because He's had a couple of, uh, he, He's had one advent and returning. He will have a second advent and returning in the sense of the Omega moment at the conclusion of the plan of God. We want to consider that. But even in terms of the Word of God, we want to consider the Word of God that never returns void. Never. 
It does not return void, or it never returns void. My word which goes forth from my mouth. Now, are we just talking about the Bible when it was written? We're talking about that very day that Isaiah put quill to parchment and this chapter was, was written down? Or does this include today? November 29th, 2015, 80, as this word is going forth. This word is going forth right here, right now. Is it going to do anything? God says he will. This word is going forth. And this word returns to him. Okay? That's what it's designed for. That's what it does. We better get on board and participate in the process. (laughs) Okay? Otherwise, it returns to him in kind of an unpleasant way for our sake as we uh, encounter our disciplinary process. So, we understand this. The written word of God is unlike anything else in creation. It goes forth and it returns with gain. It is unbelievable how it comes back with gain. It is productive, right? You know, the, the world will tell you you've got to spend money to make money and you've got to be productive with your efforts and with your investments and your time and your labors and all of your productivity is supposed to be geared towards an increase. Well, what do you think God's doing? Why is He speaking? When He speaks, the universe comes into existence, Right? He says, let there be light, and there is light. When God speaks, things happen. The written word is unlike anything else in creation. It goes forth and it returns with gain. The stuff that the word of God does inside of you is fun when you're liking it, scary when you're not liking it, but it's necessary every time. The psalmist in Psalm 119 speaks of this. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Also Psalm 138 and verse 2. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24 and verse 35. Paul spoke about it in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. It's the living and abiding word of God. You take it inside of you and man, does it do work once it gets in there. James 1.21, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It should be living within you. It should be dwelling richly within you. You know, if nothing else, the, just the nature of the Word of God and how it transforms lives, that ought to be a witness to anyone that's watching this stuff. That sees a real transformation. Sees what the Word of God does. Looks at somebody and says, you're not the person you used to be. What transformed you? What happened to you? How do, how do I get it? <laughs> okay. It's a great witness and testimony. But also the living word. Jesus Christ has gone forth and returned. It is to our advantage that he goes away. I am thankful that he didn't stay on this earth. I'm thankful that he rose again and that he ascended to the Father 10 days before Pentecost. All right? It is to our advantage. We operate with a risen, glorified Savior seated at the right hand of God the Father, an advocate for our defense, an ever-present help in time of trouble. I couldn't imagine operating in a priesthood without that, right? Operating in the angelic conflict without my advocate there at the Father's right hand. You know, in his high priestly prayer, he was anticipating this. He says, I return to you, Holy Father. I return to you in John 17, verse 8 and verse 13. The words which you gave me I've given to them that they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. And then verse 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. See, the coming to you is what gave them the salvation information, but the return to the Father is what allows them to have the fullness of the joy. My joy made full in themselves. So the living word. He did this, of course, in first advent. Kind of an interesting study. I, I wish I had more time. You know, going forth in first advent, he took no seat. When he came, he came to serve. He didn't come to be served. He didn't claim the throne of David in his first advent. He took no seat. But upon his return from first advent, he took his seat at the Father's right hand. And that is so we have the fullness of joy. That is so we have the exaltation at his right hand as he has at the Father's right hand. 
So Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 8.1. I know I'm going really fast here. But when he went forth in first advent, he took no seat. When he returned, he took his seat. He was invited. The Father said, come, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for, for your feet. Second advent, he will take a seat because the Father gives him the throne of David. He will take his seat upon the throne of David, but upon his return. That's why I say second advent also has a return. The second advent has a conclusion in the sense that after the millennium comes the fullness of time, comes the new heavens and new earth, in which a thousand generations will glorify Jesus Christ. And then comes the end, completing the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. You want more on that? I, sp- I recommend spending some time in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 and 28. It's the, it's the resurrection chapter, by the way. You're going to be reading that chapter tonight anyway for your uh, systematic theology class. All right. It's the chapter for the resurrection. It's the chapter that talks about delivering up the kingdom to the Father. And this too, Dan's not uh, Dan's in Manchac today. This was a, a question that he wrestled with in his ordination exam. I was going to give him the answer that he could have had that day. The, the, um, the great abdication, by the way, delivering up the kingdom to the Father does not mean that he is surrendering it and it does not mean that he stops being the king. He is always the king. He never stops being the king even when he delivers the kingdom back to the Father. See, he will be reigning as king for a thousand generations. He never ends. Upon the throne of David his father, there will be no end. It doesn't end. But it will stop being a stewardship as a steward, and it will be a co-regency with his father. I and the father are one. He will reign forever. But at the great abdication is when he delivers it to the father, and he invites the father to join him in this co-reign. Anyway, that's, ooh, that gets into some realms. That gets into some complete and total realms, okay? The co-regency of the Father and the Son. I and the Father are one. Yahweh and the Malach Yahweh, the, the Lord and the angel of the Lord. All right. Well, understand the word does not return void, and that includes this hour. And I know it went fast. I know a lot of that just blew over some heads. That's fine, okay? Because guess what? We get to come back. (laughs) We get to study some more. That's how it works. It's a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. We don't learn everything once. We learn a little bit, and we build on that. Next time we'll learn a little bit more, and we'll build on that. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Isaiah 55. I thank you for an invitation. Anyone, everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts, come. The provision has been made for everyone, but not everyone comes. And we know that, Father. We know that every time we preach the gospel, it'll it'll either get accepted or get rejected, and we don't know who's going to accept it and who's going to reject it. Or even if they're going to reject it now, but then later they'll accept it later. We don't know. Father, uh, I I just want to thank you for the work that you do. We evangelize, but you're the one doing the work. Your spirit is convicting, you're drawing, and your son paid it all. So I pray that we would be sensitive to um, the leading of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to folks that are asking those kind of questions, that are eager, that are hungry, that are coming, they're thirsting. Help us to spot the thirsting, Father, so we can offer the living water that our Savior offered that Samaritan woman at the well. Help us to not be discouraged, Father, when we think that our gospel is being rejected. Father, thank you for, uh, for all that you do. And I thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.